Well, happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. Screaming. Darkness. I was out of bed, but I was still swimming in sleep. All I could hear was, my eyes, my eyes, take me to the hospital. Looking through the night, I saw what appeared to be blood streaming down from Elliot's face, but with a green luminescence. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, blood doesn't glow in the dark, I don't think. Soon I had the light on and Chelsea had Elliot in her arms telling him repeatedly, Everything is going to be okay. Realized that the contents on his face, it wasn't blood, but the inside of a glow stick that had burst apart. He had risen in those early morning hours to get into some sort of play, I suppose. And I learned the value of poison control. He was shouting for the ER, I did not want to go anywhere but back to my bed. And so I called them. I was like, is this that big of a deal? You know, glow stick in the eyes, right? Not, not too terrible. And they assured me it was fine. Put him in the shower, tell him it's going to be okay, and just put him back to bed. It was great. It's interesting. Children understand naturally that when something is awry or something is wrong, when disaster comes, they understand exactly who to go to. Come to their parents. You know why? They are looking for help, for comfort, and to be affirmed. They need to know that everything is going to be okay. They want to know that all is well. We're in 2 Kings chapter 4 this morning, and we will be covering verses 17 through 37. And here we find the faith of the Shunammite woman on display once again. And we learn yet another lesson from her, and we have sort of captured that as our main idea, which is this. When your faith is tested, run to Jesus. When your faith is tested, run to Jesus. If you want the message, I think, of this story in a phrase, you might just remember, all is well. Or if you want it in a word, shalom. That's the word that is translated all is well here. It has a range of meanings, including peace, wellness, harmony, wholeness, prosperity. That can even serve as a cry for deliverance or salvation. We find that word shalom, all is well, on the lips of this woman, even as her world falls apart. And so we will have that question pressed on us and think about how we will deal with it. Where do we go when we are in distress? I hope the answer is to Christ. Outline is there before you. We are in part two of part two. And you can see we will just deal with the sections that are in bold. Remember, this chapter in chapter 4 is sort of a remix of 1 Kings chapter 17. And we are seeing that Elisha does some of the same works that Elijah did. And we are to learn that even though Israel is filled with the darkness of idolatry, the light is still shining. God is still at work. His word is present in the person of Elisha. He hasn't gone anywhere, and he is still blessing his faithful remnant. All right, that in mind, let's pray. We'll do some context, and then we'll step back into the story this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would meet us here in this time, that you would help us to hear your voice in these words. Give us your spirit that we might understand them. Give us your spirit that we 
might have them applied to us and be changed. Help us to encounter Christ this morning, to see him and savor him, to grow in our love for him. Oh, for grace to love you more, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's remind ourselves where we are in the story. Uh, Elisha has been traveling to and fro to this place called Shunem, and this Shunemite woman is a good southern gal who practices good southern hospitality. When Elisha comes to town, she invites him in for some sweet tea and urges him to eat food. Then she thinks to herself, you know, Elisha comes this way a whole lot. What else can I do for him? And so she builds an Airbnb on the roof of her house. Her house would have flat roofs in that part of the world. So they put up walls and they make him a little Airbnb for him to stay in when he travels there. And Elisha says, man, we have to do something for this woman. And he calls her in and says, what do you want me to do? You want me to put a word in with the people of power? And she says, I dwell among my own people. I don't need anything. I'm content. I'm good. She goes away and Elisha is like, man, I don't know what to get her. You know, maybe a gift card, maybe a pair of socks, I don't, a car, I don't know, Gehazi, you have any idea? And his servant Gehazi says, well, her husband's really old and she doesn't have any kids. And Elisha says, that's it? And he calls her in and he says, this time next year you are going to embrace, you're going to be nursing your own son. And she says, stop it. Don't lie to your servant. That's too good to be true. And then we read in verse 17, but the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. And so we observe that the world works according to the word of the Lord. God hasn't gone anywhere. He is still able to keep his word and bless his people. He rewards the faith of the Shunammite woman. God is the good gift giver. Every good and perfect gift is from him and he is worthy of praise and joy and honor. And then, After this great triumph, we come to the first few verses of our section this morning, we find that testing often follows triumph. And indeed, testing follows triumph here. Look at verse 18. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon. And then he died. Boy, he's grown, promised child. He's old enough to work in the field with his father, and he is still young enough to be carried back to his mother by a servant. And there she rocks him through the rest of the morning until noon. Any parent can relate to this. You have a sick child, and there's not much you can do. Worry about them. And in our, our day and age, we have all the wonders of modern medicine. You, know, you give them some Tylenol or some ibuprofen. You can take them to the ER. The Shunammite woman has no such recourse. All she can do is rock and pray and wait, everything's going to be all right. Hush, hush, it's going to be okay, son. And then, he dies. His mother's faith does not How will she respond to this distress, to this test of her faith? Does the loss of her son mean the loss of her faith? All too often, I see this happen. Testing has a way of revealing us. It tells the truth about us. If our faith really is in Christ, if we really do worship God, or if we're just actually worshiping his gifts as idols. Someone loses a loved one, it's God's fault. Gone is their faith. How how will she uh, respond? We we look at verse 21. And she went up 
and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. This is a really weird response. There's no weeping, there's no mourning, there's no conversation with others. It is a simple, she, she moves up, puts him on the bed of the man of God in Elisha's Airbnb. And she raises our suspicions. Ah, Elisha is a man of God. Is it possible that he can raise the dead as Elijah did? Our Shunammite woman seems to think so. The tension builds. Verse 22, then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. Their husband said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, shalom, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. Suspicions raising again. Mount Carmel is the place that Elisha just so happens to be. And if you jog your memory for a moment back to 1 Kings 18, you will remember that Carmel is where the magic happens. It's where fire falls from heaven. It's where false gods are defeated. It's where Yahweh proves himself supreme again and again and again. And so the suspense of the narrative builds. She's going to Mount Carmel and to the man of God. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, Shalom, all is well. She is determined at this point in her faith to defy death. In her all is well, I don't think she's being deceptive or that she's lying. I think she really believes that all is well. Because all that has come to her has come to her not by chance, but by the hand of of her heavenly father. She trusts God. All is well, even now. And I think she believes that Elisha is going to make all things well. That he is going to restore her son to life. And so she comes and she casts herself at his feet in a posture of dependence and she brings to him a complaint and a request. Verse 27. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. This is an interesting point, and it's a thread we're not going to pull on, but maybe you can think about it this week. All of God's servants, even Elisha, have limits. Elisha will be pushed to depending on God in prayer. He must confess his ignorance here. Much to learn. She is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? And Elisha said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child, and do know this is just great work by the author, she is often called the Shunammite woman throughout, but in this section, she is called mother repetitively. He wants us to recognize she, she moved from being the loving, hospitable Shunammite woman, and now she, she is a mother who has lost her son. Verse 30, the mother of the child said, 
as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. That should sound a little familiar and bring some things to the front of our minds. You've got the mother of the child. She's not mourning over the child. Instead, she's gone to the man of God. And now she's telling the man of God. She's saying back to the man of God, back to Elisha, the same words that he spoke to Elijah. You remember that? As the Lord lives, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. You remember Elijah is sort of trying to shake off Elisha before he's taken up into heaven. He does it a few times, and Elijah, Elisha keeps saying, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to see what God is going to do. And that's what she's saying. I'm staying with you. I don't think the Gehazi staff trick is going to work. I am staying with you because you bear the word and the power and the presence of God. You are the one who is going to bring deliverance here. I'm not going anywhere. She clings to the prophet. I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child. But there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet Elisha and told him, The child has not awakened. The suspense is building. Didn't work. The child is not awakened. Will Elisha be able to help him? Verse 22. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him child sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. And then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. Sort of a replay of when he told her she would have a child for the first time. Call her. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then She picked up her son and went out. Elisha comes in, sees the boy lying on his own bed, and then prays over him. He acts out his prayer. Let the life that is in me bring life to this child who lays in the place where I sleep, where I rest. Cause him to rise out of this bed as I rise out of it when I visit. Cause him to live. He prays. You have these odd details. The the kid sneezes seven times. Sign of life. And then if it were a movie, the camera would zoom in just on his eyes and the lids would be shut. And then they come open. Life. The boy lives. He's returned to his mother All is well. A happy ending to our story. And we can see the contours of it. A gift is given. A life is lost. A resurrection overcomes death. The Shunammite has her faith rewarded once more. She runs to the prophet, grieves before the prophet, and trusts the prophet to raise the dead throughout. And so we come back to our question this morning. How will I respond when tragedy comes to test my faith? I've tried to 
come up with three strategies for responding to tragedy from our text this morning. The first one is this, and it's quite simple, and she does it from the jump in verse 21. It's go to Jesus. Jesus is the great and final prophet. When when tragedy strikes, this woman does not enter into weeping right away. She does not enter into conversation with her husband. She doesn't talk to the servants about it. She doesn't speak to Gehazi about it. She's only going to speak to the prophet about it. She takes all of her mourning, all of her distress, all of her bitterness, and she throws herself and casts it at the feet of the prophet, at the feet of the one who has the power to help, to deliver. I mean, this is the Christian life in a nutshell. Non-Christian, if you are here, this is what, it, what we Christians believe. We believe that we have a big problem, that we will die physically, and that that physical death is a mere preview of what it will be like to suffer under the righteous wrath of God for all eternity in hell because of our sins. We have a sin problem And we cannot handle it on our own. There's no way out. There's no deliverance. Except that we come to the great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, poor in spirit with nothing in our hands. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And say, Jesus, we need your power. We need your grace. We need your mercy to save us, to raise us up from the dead, and to give to us eternal life. This is what faith is. It's crying out, we do not know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. Christian, when difficulty comes, go to Jesus. Stay with Jesus. Cling to him in dependent faith. As the giants of woe and despair try to rip you from his arms and plant you in the ground, refuse. Hold on tightly. Do not allow yourself to wander into the castle of despair and of doubt nothing there for you. So foolish to turn away from Christ and to turn in on yourself and to turn towards distraction or vice. It's foolish to turn toward the trinkets of this world to try and soothe yourself. They will only chain you. The sins of the past cannot deliver you. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Do not stray from the king's highway. Stay on that narrow path. Stumble forward. Keep trusting in Christ. And remember that tragedy is a test. It's a test. Difficulties come to us as, especially death, come to us as as warnings and as invitations. Remember the tower falls in Luke 13 and, and kills people. And the question, disciples are like, Jesus, why did this happen? And Jesus says, don't concern yourself with why, but concern yourself with what you must do. You must repent unless you likewise perish. So there's the warning. Death is the end of us all. There's only one way out. To turn from our sins and to trust in Christ. It's an invitation to come to the one who is master over death. When trials come, when tragedy tests you, go to Jesus. Stay with Jesus. Grieve with Jesus. And grieve without grumbling. Look at verse 28 here. I love the Shunammite woman. She's an underrated character in Scripture. She has great faith here. I I love her, but she doesn't do everything perfect. At least she has less flaws than David, right? This is what she says in verse 28. Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Sort of see how she's back to her Eeyore mentality told you, you would only bring me tears. 
<laughs> rain would come. What's his line about his tail? I'm just going to lose it again. He's grumbling. I wish you would have never given him to me. That's not how we want to grieve. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Grumbling shakes our fists at God and insists that he did something wrong. It's sinful. Much better to respond like Job. You all remember how Job responded. He loses absolutely everything. He tears his clothes, shaves his head, falls to the ground, and worships, saying, Job 1.21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This must be our posture towards God. And trials have a way of telling the truth about us. When we have our faith tested by any kind of trial, and tragedy specifically. We have to remember that they are just going to reveal what's in us. They're going to reveal that, that we have the gold of genuine faith in Christ, that we really have been born again, that he really has saved us. Or, they're going to reveal that the faith we might have thought we had was fool's gold. We never really trusted Jesus with the things we have in this life. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 5, we're going to go through verse 7, and I've pushed a bunch of translations together here because I thought it would make it simpler. So just listen. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Whatever you're going through, you're being guarded by God's power. He's going to get you home. Therefore, you rejoice in this. Even though now, for a short time, if necessary, let me add here later, Peter says that when you suffer according to the will of God, you can entrust yourself to the faithful creator while doing good if necessary, is because, not because circumstances deem it necessary, but because God has deemed it necessary. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Peter wants us to know that God will guard us and guide us faithfully unto the end, that he will reward our faith as we conquer trial after trial, clinging to Christ. He wants us to know that these trials, well, they show us what we're made of. That they can be great boons to our confidence, to our assurance. You, you stay with Jesus through tragedy and you get to the other side and you go, I really do believe the gospel. He really did get me through that. So that your faith is strengthened and empowered Friends, tragedy and testing will come. How will you respond? Will you grumble? You must endure without grumbling. If, if we are no more than fair-weather Christians, well, then we are not Christians. Is your faith real as gold? Or faulty as fool's gold? I pray that you would truly trust in Christ. Loved ones, Christ is Lord when peace like a river attendeth your way. 
and Christ is Lord when sorrows like sea billows roll. If you are in Christ, you can say in good times and in bad, it is well, it is well with my soul. All is well. You can say shalom because you are united to Christ in faith and therefore you can grieve without grumbling. Grieve with Jesus, grieve without grumbling and grieve with hope. Go go back to verse 28. I just said she grumbled a little, right? There's a complaint there. But there is also a request bound up in her complaint. Her falling before Elisha sort of has a, a pregnancy to it. She's saying, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, don't deceive me? Don't deceive me. Give me my son. She's got hopes that Elisha can raise the dead like Elijah, that her boy will live, that God can restore to her all that is lost. Isn't that the Christian hope? Jesus Christ will make a new heavens and a new earth. Think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you might not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. We need to grieve in light of the great promises of God. Grieve knowing that God is for you. Grieve knowing that God is working all things together for your good, Christian. Grieve knowing that all things happen not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Grieve with the coming glory in mind. Grieve with Christ. Grieve without grumbling. Grieve hopefully. And grieve with gratitude. With gratitude. This is easier said than done. I mean, the Shunammite doesn't even do it. But gratefulness ought to mark those who know God as Father, even in our grief. 1 Thessalonians again, chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You want to know God's will for your life? Pray, rejoice, give thanks. It doesn't say give thanks when it's blue skies and rainbows. He says give thanks when it's blue skies and when there are dark clouds. Find the deep mercy of God in both places. Give thanks in all circumstances. And you might say to me, how? How? We've mentioned some ways this morning. I think ultimately it comes down to settled faith. Trust that God is good. That he's for you. And trust him even, even in the deepest possible pain. I'm happy to report, I have seen, I'm not happy that many of you have grieved, and that's not what's going to come out really weird. Uh, I'm happy that you're all grieving. No, that's not. I'm happy how you have grieved when I've seen you lose loved ones. And I could put the spotlight on any number of you. But I want to put the spotlight on my wife a little bit this morning. She has had to grieve uh, much more than I would like over the past five or so years. And specifically, I'm going to highlight the the loss of her mother this morning. That whole story, many of you are familiar with it, but it would have been easy for her to get really angry at the Lord and to grumble. Her mother had a breast cancer diagnosis, defeated breast cancer, and then had the, the annual checkup. And On one of her annual checkups, 
The imaging revealed that the cancer had returned, but a doctor dismissed it as nothing important, ignored it, and as a consequence, that cancer had an opportunity to get on the lymph node highway and riddle the rest of her body, such that she only had a couple of years left. You don't want to ask those questions. Couldn't God have stopped this from happening? Couldn't, couldn't God have you know, caused the doctor not to make an error? Sure. God knew the cancer was there. He wasn't out of control of it. Throughout the whole thing, she resolved, God is in this, and I will trust him. I can remember during the long season of sorrow there, especially towards those last few months, she said to me something akin to, this is terrible because it feels like my mother is dying again and again. I lose, losing her piece by piece. Those last few months, uh, Sherry went into hospice. And one of the wonderful things of, that I've seen Chelsea do in our marriage happen, uh, it was just like October-ish, and uh, Chelsea and, and her sister decided, that we're going to decorate mom's room like Christmas. You know how institutional those places can be, very clinical, very clean, like nobody wants to go into hospice. It's not typically not a fun experience. But they had sort of, Sherry loved Christmas, everything was over the top. If you went in like, and it was Christmas time at their house, you knew, um, to say the least. Snowmen everywhere, you know, four or five trees, garland, just obnoxious, right? And, and so they, they had decided that if their mother was going to die, she would die surrounded by the joy of Christmas. <laughs> it was sort of morbid after the fact, but, but beforehand it was wonderful. Remember she put the tree up and garland and ornaments on the tree. It's fantastic. There's notes of hopefulness and expectation in the room. Even on that last day, when the Lord provided Chelsea with a strange blessing. Chastity and Papa had uh, needed a break, and so they were going to get some food or something or the other, and Chelsea was with her mother alone. And she decided to read to her from Romans chapter 8. And I've smashed some of the verses there together, but it's a, it's a glorious chapter. Let me read parts of it to you. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a glorious chapter. Chelsea was reading these wonderful truths to her mother when she began. Uh, breathing with what's called the death rattle. In the case of believers, I prefer to think of it as that inward groan making its way out. She stopped reading. Cradled her mother in her arms and said, it's okay. Everything is going to be Okay, I could paraphrase it and say, all is well. 
shalom. And her mother died. A tragedy, a test, a strange blessing. We buried her mother. We didn't bury our grief. You lose people. You don't, it's not like you grieve and then you stop grieving and you don't care anymore. I look at, uh, you guys have heard Benjamin, how loud he is and how big his personality is. And, and you just, that, that's Sherry. I always tell Chelsea, that's your mama, that boy. Look at my girls sometimes, and I, I wonder what Sherry would have done with their hair. I hate, like, the big hair thing from the 80s, but Chelsea's mom loved it. Like, they probably have these big blowouts or perms or something already. <laughs> you know, and I, I would have loved to see that. I mean, we believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, and we long for it, but even now there, there's grief. That's okay. It's okay to miss those that aren't with us any longer. It's not okay to grumble about the fact that they're not here. Much better to give thanks for what God has given. I think that's the key, I said a minute ago now, that we need to grieve with gratitude. The key is to recognize that what we have is from God. It's a gift. And when he takes it away, we, we don't get to act as if we were entitled to it. Instead, we ought to say with Job, he gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. All his words and deeds are right. He is good. He is for me. And I trust him. Let us be thankful for what God gives rather than acting entitled to what he has not given. Love that quote from Spurgeon. I'll share it again. He's too wise. I'm going to mess it up though. He's too wise. I'm sorry, he's too good to be unkind. He's too wise. I'm going to paraphrase because I can't get it. To do anything that would not be wise. And when we cannot trace his hand, we can trust his heart. We can trust him and give thanks for what he has given. We can grieve with Jesus. We can grieve without grumbling. We can grieve with hope. We can grieve with gratitude. And we can grieve with a cheerful defiance. This is my favorite thing about this section. This woman is so defiant. I mean, from the very moment the boy dies in her arms, it's as if she says, oh no, not today. I mean, she puts him down and she just resolutely goes to Elisha. And her faith, she, she looks at death and she says, death is not going to be the last word here. God has the power to raise him to life. Love it. Her faith is rewarded. Elisha raises the boy from the dead. We're reminded that Elisha is not the be-all, end-all of the promises of God. Though we do think of, he's got the power of Elijah from 1 Kings 17, he raises a widow's son. And he also points forward to the great prophet that is to come. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Jesus is around a town called Nain, which, wouldn't you know it, just a few miles from the town of Shunem. Important context there. This is what we read. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. 
the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, it's like a coffin, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, I imagine he did it with a smile on his face. I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Even in this miracle, we see that Jesus is greater than Elijah and Elisha and anyone who has come before. They anticipate him. They point forward to him, but he is the real deal. Notice, Elisha says, she is in bitter distress. The Lord has hidden it from me. He can only grieve with her. Send Gehazi, and then ultimately close himself in the room and pray for resurrection. Jesus is not just a man of God. He is the God-man. He can say to the woman, do not weep. Because he knows he can put an end to her weeping. Not with a prayer, but with a word. He is the word made flesh. Friends, we can be cheerfully defiant because we are one with Jesus Christ. That's what happens when you put your faith in Christ. You are united with him. We can be defiant in the face of suffering and sorrow and death because we know who we have believed. Jesus the Christ, the ancient one, the ever-present help in time of need, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. We know that the one who trusts in him Though he die, yet shall he live. We know that he is coming soon to wipe away every tear, to make all things new, to restore all that was lost. He can do way more than Elisha, and he will do it. He keeps his word. The world works according to his word. But I don't want to stop there. There's one more theological wrinkle in our text I want to bring your attention to. Jesus is not just like Elisha in this story. He's also like the nameless boy. Jesus is born miraculously. He is the promised son. Jesus dies in the sight of his mother, not wrapped in her arms, but with his arms fastened to a cross by nails. And he is raised to new life by God. The woman was clinging to her son, but God the Father gave his. God gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died to purchase his people, all who will repent and believe, back from death back from the wrath of God, back from the way of evil and the path of destruction. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus paid it all, and he offers to us life eternal for free. This whole chapter sort of has a gospel flavor to it. A gift is given, a life is lost, and a resurrection overcomes death. It's the Christian story. It's the end of all of our stories. The last word in our lives is not death and mourning and trial and grief, but resurrection and joy and happily ever after. 
Jesus' resurrection is his vindication and our guarantee. He lives as king forever. And he will ensure that his church gets through this life, gets through every trial, gets through every test, gets through every difficulty, and then raises to eternal life together with him. Brothers and sisters, Christ is Lord. He rules the world. He is Lord, therefore live in defiance. Live in defiance of the world. Live in defiance of the flesh. Live in defiance of the devil. Live in defiance of death itself. Be like the Shunammite woman and say, this is not the end. Christ is Lord. It is well. All is well. Not even death is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When your faith is tested, cling to the one who holds you fast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news that rebel sinners like us who deserve death can be given life because Jesus took the death that should have been ours on Calgary's hill so many years ago. We thank you that because Jesus took our death and gives to us his life, we can know you as father rather than as judge. We can have happily ever after as the ending of our story rather than eternal torment. It is scandalous that you love sinners like us and make us saints. We pray that you would help us to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received, that you would help us to cling to Christ, to grieve without grumbling, to grieve with hope, grieve with gratitude and to grieve defying defying the world the flesh and the devil and death itself we pray these things in Christ's name amen